Well, thanks, Bert, and good morning, everyone. Let me add my word of welcome, and for any who don't know me, my name's Ryan. I have the privilege of being the senior pastor here at Narrow Baptist Church. As we come once more to God's word, let me ask that you'd again join with me briefly in a moment of prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the conclusion of our series on the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus, we ask that as we review them, you might stir in our hearts, minds, and spirits the truths of these words, that you might enable us to see how you would have us apply them to our lives. And Lord, as we consider the following words of Christ, that we are salt and light, we ask that you would grant us a vision of what you would have us be as your people, that we might live in this world in a way that truly brings glory and honor to you. We ask that you would be with us now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as has been mentioned a couple of times already this morning, we have been working through a series on the Beatitudes found here in the Gospel of Matthew. And in that time of reflection, I hope you indeed were reminded of both the encouragement and the challenge that's been evident throughout this series. Over the last eight weeks, we've considered each of these statements that our Lord Jesus made about being truly blessed. But these statements are not made in isolation. They come as part of his great sermon on the Mount. My encouragement is that after today, you take the time to read the entirety of that sermon, that you might see how Jesus builds his argument for life as a disciple starting with the Beatitudes and moving on through his teaching. You'll also notice that the words immediately following the eight Beatitudes that we've considered again point to the persecution that the Christian is to expect. But given that last week we considered this Beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I thought that instead of pressing again into the nature of persecution, rather this final sermon in the series will be something of a refresher, a reminder, and then we'll look at Jesus' immediate teaching following, particularly how a disciple should live in this world and how their life, our life, should impact the world around us. How is it that salt and light affect this world? So that's where we're headed. But first, let's review the Beatitudes once, one last time. The Beatitudes are those supreme blessings. That's what the word Beatitude means. Some translations will have the word happy are those or content are those. But we've learned that blessedness is far more than happiness or contentment. It is a deep-seated joy and satisfaction that resides from the knowledge that you are in God's will. To be blessed by God is to be found where he wants you, doing what he desires of you, to be approved by God. And when we know that we are firmly placed within the will of God, his good, pleasing and perfect will, it brings to us an unshakable joy 
a true satisfaction. This is what Jesus is trying to establish for his disciples and all disciples at the outset of this message. That when you are in God's will, despite the ironically difficult circumstances that life might have you in, you are truly blessed. And these words we've learned are applicable to all disciples. Jesus here addresses not simply the 12, but all those disciples that have gathered around him on the mountainside. And the future tense of these statements, the blessed are you when you are persecuted, speaking of that happening in the future, implies that these words are intended for all disciples, including you and including me if we are followers of Christ. These words are not for the super Christians out there, the elite among the church. These words are not for the prominent, the famous Christians that we see all over the internet or that we have books of on our shelves. These words are not simply for your elders or those esteemed throughout church history. These beatitudes, these states of blessing are for all Christians. So too are the promises associated with them. All who would claim the name of Christ, anyone here today who would call themselves Christian and has committed themselves to following the ways and the person of the Lord Jesus, these words are for us. And they apply directly to our lives too. And despite the fact that we've studied these eight sayings individually in isolation, we need to remind ourselves that they are not simply isolated proverbs. They're not eight pithy sayings of Jesus that someone collated into a set. They come as one unit and there is a discernible flow. Andrew touched on that briefly just prior to our reflection, but I want to show us again how it is that these Beatitudes work together. Jesus starts, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we know that our journey in faith begins with the recognition of our own state. When we see the corruptness of our own sinful hearts, when we acknowledge how far we are from God, when we see our own poverty, spiritually speaking, it should lead to repentance. And repentance is the access point to the kingdom of heaven. Those are the first instructions Jesus gives when he proclaims that the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, he says, turn from your sinful ways. When we realize our corruption and our poverty before God, it is natural that we will grieve such things. And Jesus continues, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Grief over our sinfulness is the natural flow on from recognizing our spiritual poverty. And the comfort that we experience is not that Jesus comes alongside us and pats us on the back and tells us it's all okay. Rather that he makes a way for us to experience forgiveness in amidst our spiritual depravity. As we grieve our sin, confess it and take it to our Lord. He nails it to the cross and forgives us. As those who are forgiven, the next beatitude speaks to our attitude and how we should live in response. Blessed are the meek, says Jesus, for they will inherit the earth. 
when we realize that our salvation is based not on anything we have done, but entirely on the work of Christ, on his grace and on his goodness, it should humble us, forcing us to become meek, controlled, dependent on God. And as we humble ourselves before him, so too we will humble ourselves before one another, serving and loving him as we serve and love each other. We're told, of course, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first in the kingdom of God. And so it is that the great who would see themselves humbly and meekly shall be lifted up in the last day. As those who have set their disposition of meekness before God, Jesus continues, Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled when we have the right attitude and reverent respect for God, when we've humbled ourselves as the recipients of mercy and grace, it is natural that our next step in life will be to hunger after Christ, to desire to be like the one who has saved us, the one who calls us to be holy. And we should hunger and thirst that we might be godly and righteous and just in all we do. And Jesus promises that such people will be filled, that there will be a satisfaction of that desire and we will indeed become more righteous. Those acts of righteousness will then flow out in the Christian life as mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Our righteous lives will be marked by the same mercy that we know we have received from Christ. We are both the recipients and the creditors of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace in the lives of ourselves and others. True pursuit of righteousness also flows out in our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, says Jesus, for they will see God. Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, takes our corrupt and broken heart. He takes the heart of stone and replaces it with the heart of flesh, enabling us to truly be pure, holy, pleasing to God, to live by God's power for God's glory. And such people together, the church living in such a way, will be marked out by the peace that they experience. The attitude of verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Brothers and sisters, we are those who have been called children of God. If we have come to Christ, if we are serving him, if we are his disciples, then we have been redeemed, become inheritance of the kingdom. We are children of God and the beatitude here instructs that we should therefore live at peace with one another, doing all that is necessary. Yes, sometimes very hard work, as Colin reminded us. To live as God's children. To be at peace. And despite the fact that we are instructed and encouraged to find peace within the body. We are reminded that we will not always have peace within this world. And so we considered last week Jesus' words. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The expectation of the peaceful disciples life in the world, is that they will be rejected by it. That they will be persecuted, either physically or verbally, 
at a low level or at a catastrophic level, the expectation is that there will be rejection and persecution. So how do we let the Beatitudes function in our lives as individuals and also as a collective church? Firstly, I want to encourage us that they are expectations. And I've touched on that already. These are not words for a few among us, but expectations for us all if we bear the name of Jesus. This is what we should anticipate as Christians. This is what we should encourage in one another. This is what we should rebuke one another for when we fail. And this is what we should strive for as a people together. They function as expectations, instructions for our life and lives together. They're also guideposts. These Beatitudes, when we see them enacted in our lives or the lives of our dear brothers and sisters, we know that we're on the right track. If you go off wandering through a marked out path in the bush and bit by bit you find those little guideposts that remind you you're on the right path, you take comfort in that, knowing that you are on the right track to your anticipated destination. So it is with the Beatitudes. When we see our brothers and sisters mourning sin and repenting of it, we should celebrate that they're on the right path. When we see brothers and sisters restored into peace despite disunity, we should celebrate that we are still on track to the kingdom of heaven. When we see people who are living more purely this day than they were the day before, we should rejoice knowing that we are heading down God's path for us. The Beatitudes are guideposts for the Christian life and for the church as well. To be found in the will of God in that supreme blessedness, either as an individual or as a church, is a great comfort in any circumstance. And finally, they function as reminders the Beatitudes function as reminders of the goodness that we have experienced in Jesus. All too easily we can become familiar with what Christ has done for us. We can take for granted what it means to be those who have received mercy. We can take for granted what it means to be those who have mourned our sin and been forgiven when there are so many left in sin who will not experience forgiveness. These Beatitudes remind us of what we have in Christ. Without Him, without His Spirit at work, these Beatitudes are literal impossibilities. None could consider themselves truly blessed if it weren't for what Christ has done in His death and His resurrection. And he's pouring out of mercy and grace on our lives. So the Beatitudes should point us to the goodness of knowing Jesus. All of this reminds us that these Beatitudes are impossible for those outside of Christ's kingdom. If you do not have the Spirit of God at work in your life, the world may perceive that you are a good person, that you are a peacemaker, but you cannot truly live the Beatitudes 
unless you are empowered by Christ himself. These beatitudes will mark the Christian out as different. And that, of course, is what leads to persecution at the conclusion of the beatitudes. But it also leads to something else, and that's what we're going to continue considering as we read on. One of my Bible college lecturers used to remind us regularly that theology doesn't happen in a bubble. That simply thinking about God isn't enough. It has to be practiced, lived out. It has to shift from head to heart. And so it is with these Beatitudes. We must not simply wrestle with them and understand them. They must take root and flourish and grow and outwork in our lives. Now that may be comparatively straightforward in our private lives. Considering ourselves peacemakers, pure, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, that may be okay in our quiet times at home. It may even be doable within the church body where all of us are on the same page that these are good and proper things to be doing. But Jesus reminds us in his following words, that we must also still exist in this world. And the life marked out by the Beatitudes should impact the world. If you have your Bibles, please do open them again or keep them open at Matthew 5, where Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount with these words. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in its house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Trust you can see what Jesus is doing here. Having described the truly blessed life that a disciple should experience, Jesus now acknowledges the difference that will exist between his disciples and those who are of the world. And in particular, he describes the influence that the blessed disciple should have on the world around them. And he uses two simple but clear images, salt and light. And it's salt and light that we're now going to consider for the remainder of this message. Let's begin with salt. If you were here a few weeks ago as we considered hunger and thirst for righteousness, you would know that in that one word, hunger, we found nearly 40 minutes of illustration. Seven different ways of considering how it is that we hunger after righteousness. From one simple word. Similarly, salt is a fleeting but powerful image. Jesus simply says, you are the salt of the earth. That is his observation, his instruction. So how is being the salt of the earth a powerful image? Well, salt had 
two primary purposes. Preservation and enhancement. We're going to consider those now. Firstly, preservation. Salt has long been used before we invented refrigeration to slow the decay of meats and other foodstuffs. By adding salt to produce, it would break down more slowly. It would not rot as quickly. And so salt has long been used to preserve things. And in Jesus' time, that would have been its most common use. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, it would very quickly encourage his disciples to see themselves as preservatives. As Christians, as salt, we prevent the rapid decline of our world. Though our world is fallen, though it continues to move further and further from God as he gives it over to its sinful desires, as the world drifts farther and farther from God's good design, as the world rots and decays around us, the Christian influence should slow that process. The goodness of the Christian should stem the decay of the world. The injection of true righteousness, genuine godliness, holy purity is sufficient to somewhat preserve this world, to delay its decay. And though we know it will eventually reach its end, though it will get to a point where God is done and unleashes his holy judgment, the Christian witness scattered throughout this world acts as a preservative, delaying that time, slowing it, finding some good amidst the decay. The second function of salt is what we still use it for this day. It is a flavor enhancer. Salt draws out and amplifies the flavor of that to which it is applied. It has a seasoning effect. So it has always been used throughout history. And again, this simple image speaks to the disciple found in the world around them. Our gospel witness is to be as salt, enhancing God's goodness in the world. Our words, our thoughts, our deeds are the seasoning of grace throughout the world. It is God's means to draw out the good flavor. It is God's means of drawing other people from the world into his kingdom. As an enhancer, Christians take the unsavoriness of this world and make it palatable to God. Not in its entirety, of course, but it is through our witness, through our saltiness, that others will come to know God. Finally, perhaps less commonly known, salt is life-giving. And heart 
reaching. In our world where we probably have too much salt in our physical bodies, we know that it can ultimately cause problems. But it's also true to say that without salt, humans and other animals cannot survive. So it is in the world. Were there no Christians, the world would be entirely dead. Salt is a vital part of life, as disciples are the life of this world. Jesus continues, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Friends, there is a real danger when the salt is corrupted by the world. When the salt is filled with grit and dross, if the world influences us negatively rather than us seasoning the world, Jesus says our witness becomes useless. But I'll speak more on that in a moment. First, we need to consider the other image of light. Jesus says you are the light of the world. Friends, light is the perfect imagery for what the Christian is. Light is the image attributed to Jesus himself at the beginning of John's Gospel. Firstly, let me say that light is vibrant and unmissable. Truly, when we are in the dark, any light shines out vibrantly. Perhaps you've had the joy of experiencing a dark night out in the wilderness, far away from man-made sources of light, you Look up and their stars are at their clearest. They shine all the more brightly for us being found in the darkness. Or perhaps in the depths of night you awake in your house and the clock, which would normally seem quite dim by day, is suddenly so bright that you can't open your eyes. Light shines vibrantly and unmissably in the darkness. Now I imagine, friends, that this image was far more impacting for those who dwelt in a time where there wasn't the unceasing light of the electricity grid. Those who knew true darkness would appreciate more the simple light of a candle or a lamp. But Jesus says that we are to be like that shining vibrantly and unmissably in the darkness of the world. Like the city on the hill, he says, our witness is to influence all around us, radiantly, unmissably. May the world see your good deeds, which witness your righteousness, your purity, and so glorify your Father. There is an irony here, is there not? The same light that shines out of us that will evoke persecution from some is the very same witness that God will use to lead others to their conversion. The second observation I make about light is that it overcomes the darkness. They cannot coexist. Where there is light, there cannot be darkness. Darkness cannot abide and reside in the light. So far removed is the Christian witness from the state of the world that they cannot 
dwell together. Where our light shines, it pushes out the darkness. The final observation about light, which would have again triggered in the minds of Jesus' original audience, is that light is contagious. Light at that time was associated with fire, with burning wicks or lighted oil. And light was used to ignite more light, just as flame is used to ignite more flame. That image again reminds us of Jesus' intentions for disciples in this world. As we burn for Christ, as we radiate light, we will be contagious, triggering more people to ignite for Christ, to burn for Christ. And so the gospel witness will grow and grow and grow. This is done by the life that we live amongst the darkness of the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter makes a similar observation to our Lord. In 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, as those who are different from the world, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That is, seek righteousness. He continues, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, that's where persecution comes, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let me read that again without my interjection. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Our lives as disciples, as the blessed people in this world, is to live in such a way that our lives radiate the goodness of God, draw the attention of the darkness, so that they too might glorify God, that they might come to understand who he is, the one true God, the only one worthy of glory and worship. But there's a warning here in the comments on light as well. Just as there's a danger that salt can be corrupted, Jesus warns that light might also be hidden. He says, you do not cover a lamp. It's a warning. The Bible Project, a, a great ministry that I thoroughly endorse. You can find wonderful videos that they've put together on YouTube on all manner of things. says of this particular passage, this warning. What sorts of things can hinder the Christian from fulfilling their role as salt and light in the world? The passage clearly states that the difference between the Christian and the world must be preserved. Therefore, any choice on our part that blurs the distinction between us and the rest of the world is a step in the wrong direction. This can happen either through choice to accept the ways of the world or choice to ignore obedience to Christ. Friends, salt, we're told, we, the salt of the earth, can be contaminated when we choose to accept the ways of the world, 
when the influence of the world corrupts the church, we lose our impact. When we allow the world to overrun our church, when we try to win people by being more like them rather than different from them, we fail in our task. Sadly, around our world and indeed around our nation and state, there are a great many churches that think the way to impact the world is to become more like them. If we accept the world's ways, if we use their language and their customs, if we mimic the world, if we become more relevant, we'll become more appealing. They're completely wrong. They're losing their saltiness. The impact of the church has always been and will always be that it stands opposed to the world, that it is different, that it offers life in the place of death, That it speaks truth amidst a world of lies. That it sees order amongst chaos. The gospel, the message of salvation found in Christ is a unique message entirely separated from the philosophies of this world. And we must hold that out as different to everything the world has to offer. We must call people out of the world to come to Christ rather than us trying to be more like them. That's where salt becomes contaminated. But the other comment that the Bible Project made is that we can lose this when we choose to ignore obedience to Christ. Friends, that is when we let our light be hidden. When we hide the truth we know, when we subvert who we are so that we might avoid persecution, when we shy away from mentioning truth so as not to offend or not draw attention to ourselves, when we downplay the things of Christ to avoid hardship despite Jesus' promise of persecution, we hide our light, we cover our lamps, Friends, as we come away from the series on the Beatitudes, I trust that we've said it enough, that these blessings of Christ are so very counter-cultural. Everything about them stands opposed to our world. Everything about them seems wrong to the human mind. And yet Christ affirms time and time again that these are the things God desires for his people. And here, as he speaks of salt and light, he reminds us how very far removed we are from one another. And though we dwell in the world, it should be as witnesses to what Christ offers. We must not suppress the light we have. We must not be contaminated by the grit and dirt of this world. Else we miss God's true purpose for us. Having established his Beatitudes, Jesus says to his disciples, to you, to me today, you are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Brothers and sisters, blessed by God, those who embody the Beatitudes in your private lives, in your church life, may we equally be true salt and true light in this world. Let me pray that we would do just that. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have spent considering the Beatitudes over the past eight weeks or so. We thank you that in your goodness you preserve for us the teaching of our Lord Jesus, that we can be rebuked, encouraged, guided, and reminded by these words. Lord, as we have prayed many times this term, we ask that you would take your word, not implant it simply in our minds, but grow it in our hearts and enable us to live it out in the world around us. Lord, we ask that you would equip us and resource us to be pure salt, vibrant light in this world. May you keep us from the temptation to embrace worldly ways and patterns. May you help us resist the urge to suppress what we know for the sake of comfort and peace. Lord, we ask that we would truly be those who live the blessed life that we would truly bear witness to who you are and what you have done in Christ. We ask that as we do this, the world might turn to Jesus, seeing your goodness in us and in the gospel message. We pray it in Jesus' name.